Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Appreciate those words. When you think about the testimony of Daniel and really many things that we find in the Old Testament, they help to underscore the fact that we're in a spiritual battle primarily. I mean, we get wrapped up in seeing the world through our carnal eyes and we look at the realm of politics and the realm of all sorts of things going on at work and maybe within our families and stuff like that and we maybe think about it from the standpoint of how we might address those things. But all those things, what sits underneath all that is really a spiritual battle that we're up against. Sometimes that pops out a little more when you look at Old Testament examples because you see miracles and, you know, angels and messengers appearing and you say, oh, this is a spiritual thing. It was really spiritual back then in ways that it's not today, but it's still a spiritual battle today, even if you're not being visited by an angel. The Bible refers to a lot of metaphors that have to do with fighting and warfare and being a soldier And uh, I remember when I was a kid growing up in church, we used to sing Onward Christian Soldiers. I thought that was a rousing hymn. And, you know, I kind of liked that depiction as a child. It kind of got my blood pumping a little bit to think about that. You know, we're in a fight here. But it's really how the Bible talks about the matters that we confront in this life. They are spiritual and we're in a battle. And we're told to prepare for that battle. The psalmist in Psalm 35 says, Plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. Fight against them that fight against me. See, he's saying there's people that are against me in this world. Now, in David's life, you you see that. You know, you've got the Philistines and you've got all these people who were... He was a king. So you had nations coming against Israel and these sorts of things. But if you look more closely at David's life... He had people within his own family who were coming against him. Some of those were the result of some sins that he had committed and kind of messed up his whole house. He had a lot of people who were against him. And I think one of the things we're supposed to glean from Psalm 35 is that if you're living in this world as a Christian, you're going to find that there are people who are against you. So if you're going to have to fight a fight and fight a battle like this, it's good to be aware of that. In the military, they talk about situational awareness. You need to know what's going on around you. You don't want to be caught off guard. That's like the worst thing that could happen. We're just sitting out here in the woods. We're in this military campaign, and we're not paying any attention. And somebody sneaks up from behind. You didn't set a rear guard, and now the the whole situation is a wreck, right? You need to at all times be vigilant and maintain situational awareness about what you're doing. This is a dangerous thing. There are people who are against you. Don't just assume it's all going to go well. You need to be prepared for it. The Bible speaks in that way as well. And we'll find that as we turn back over and try to finish up today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is where we've been. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We uh, kind of finished up last time with a section that's talking about money. That's where everybody gets sensitive. Most people don't like it when you start talking about their money. All that preacher's up there, he's trying to get a raise or he's trying to, you know, get some more money so the church could do something. Hopefully that is not the incentive that anyone would take, but I think it's evident that some do. Nevertheless, you can't let the fact that some people misuse money cause you to avoid the Bible's teachings about the dangers of money. 
and about all that's involved there. And I, I've tried to emphasize in recent weeks the importance of our understanding of how money can be an impediment to your spiritual life. We generally think of affluence as a good thing and as a blessing, full stop, no further consideration. But as often as not, it can create impediments to your spiritual progress. And that's why Paul said in verse 10 of chapter 6, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. They erred from the faith. Right? They were in the faith. See, these are God's people. These are people of faith who for a time were in good standing, and then they came into some money, and it caused them to err from the faith. Right? So this is a warning for us. It's that one nobody kind of wants to hear. But uh, it says it pierced themselves with many sorrows. So he comes on the tail end of this, having warned against money and the, the dangers of prosperity. And he says this in verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. And when you talk about fleeing, you're talking about getting away from something that's going to be dangerous, right? You think about people fleeing a burning house. Or, you know, if you're walking along in the woods and all of a sudden you look down and you see a poisonous snake there, you're apt to flee. It's usually something that you say, this, if an immediate change is not made and I don't quickly put distance between me and the danger, there could be problems. That's why you flee, right? So, again... This is emphasizing the importance of how money can be problematic and how we need to think about it differently than our carnal heart would think about it. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. That's kind of a partial uh, fruit of the Spirit. If you go over and look in Ephesians, and perhaps we'll turn to that here in just a minute. But there's something you should turn from, the pursuit of money, and you should turn toward these things which are the spiritual, what should be the spiritual produce of your life. You are a spiritual farmer, and you ought to have some produce, and that produce takes the form of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Now, I suppose that uh, in our assembly, Brother Leon is probably the closest thing I can think of to a farmer. And uh, he does a good work out in his uh, garden, and he brings forth produce. And I've been the beneficiary of it for many years. Okra, squash, tomatoes, watermelons, all this good stuff, muscadines. Those of you who have been the recipients of that, and there are many, I see you smiling out there. If I were to say to you, you know, Brother, Brother Leon, he's kind of like the farmer of, of the, uh, the assembly here. You would all say, I believe that. I know it. I have been a beneficiary of the produce. It's unquestionable. There's been fruit produced and it's been distributed to the benefit of many others. The evidence is irrefutable, right? If we were in a court of law, 
it would be irrefutable evidence. We'd have so many, so great a cloud of witnesses to this thing that no one would debate it. Now, think about that from the standpoint of your spiritual service and the good works, which Brother Randy mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, that we should walk in them. Those things are to be the produce of our lives, very much in the same way that the produce of Brother Leon's farm is made manifest to us who have been the beneficiaries thereof. The way we walk in righteousness, the way we exhibit patience towards one another, godliness, love towards one another, meekness, all these things should be the produce. That should be the bag of produce that we're all bringing spiritually into the assembly as a family, and we should all be feasting on that with one another and benefiting from it. It's very important that you think about it and that you think about that as the produce of your life. We are too inclined, as we look at a stack of bills that hits the mailbox on a weekly basis, to think about the produce is how much money I've put in the bank so that I can cover all these bills. And you can get so focused on that that you don't think anything about righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. So we need to think about those things. But in verse 12, he makes this statement. And this is kind of more central to the thesis. I guess if I had to title this, it would be fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now this is talking about within the context of the church. This is a rallying battle cry for church members, and it identifies that you are in a fight in this world, very much like what we saw in Psalm 37. There are forces that are against you, and you need to be prepared for the battle, and you need to think of this as fighting the good fight of faith. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, we find something about that uh, partial list of uh, the fruit of the Spirit. We see some mention of this armor of God. If we're going into battle, we need some armor. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You've got stuff coming after you in this world, and you'd be nuts not to put on some armor. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't just put on a few items. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Our battle is a spiritual one. Right? It's not, oh, I've got this situation going on with politics, and maybe there's a spiritual dimension to it. No, it's all spiritual. And the politics aspect of it is just some manifestation or expression of maybe how that spiritual battle is going. You know, this problem is not going to be solved by getting the right person in the White House. It may be good for our nation to have one versus another in the White House, but the spiritual battle is not one on that level. That is not the battle. It may be some manifestation of a direction that we're headed, whether or not we're under uh, some sort of judgment of God or something like that. But we need to think about this in terms of the spiritual battle that we all face. And I would kind of say it this way. I guess uh, one of the ways I think about this is um, 
from the standpoint of what we're doing in our lives, we need to be more focused on our spiritual battles than we are on our political battles. Right? I'm telling you, people, I've talked to some of you. I know how it is. Some of you get pretty fired up on politics, and I can be right there with you. It's easy to get that way. But we have to step back and think about this as a spiritual battle and think about what we can do in our immediate sphere of influence. Now, if you think about the instability that's been visited into our society by the rampant practice of sin, I suspect there's not a law that could be instituted by our government that would say, oh, if we just had that law, that problem's not going to be there anymore. The problem is distributed. It's distributed across all the population, and it is built up from the ground up by a bunch of horrible, sinful decisions that people have made all across society. And it's just allowed to permeate. But if you could take individuals within that society and start saying, you need to stop living that way, you need to stop doing that, you need to follow the Lord, you need to get into the spiritual battle, you need to be doing as you ought as a servant of Christ, you would start to see the problem dissipate, right? Those problems are generated at the individual level, and they can be addressed in your life at the individual level because they're spiritual in nature. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand. You can actually get through this, right? If you're following the Lord as a disciple and as you ought, you have sufficient armor here that's going to be laid out such that you can actually withstand this and not be swept away by the, um, the tidal wave of immorality that's swept over our country. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. You've got to have the truth. I mean that you can see that there's a lot of people being blown around by every wind of doctrine in our society today because they're not within a thousand miles of the truth. Simple truths about gender, male and female, these sorts of things that literally, you know, a decade ago were not really in question. If they were, it was very much on the fringe of society. This stuff is totally in the mainstream now. We've got people who are so far removed from fundamental truths. If they're that far removed from the truth, how are they going to stand if they don't even have any truth? They don't have any access to truth. <clears throat> By the way, whatever measure of truth you have, I can assure you that it is an eroding asset in your life. You don't just come to church, hear one thing one day, and it's just rock solid in your life from that point forward and you never waver on it. It just doesn't work that way. As you build your own spiritual house... You're going to have to do more maintenance on it than you do on your natural house. Amen. Because the weather is that much worse. My house has all kinds of issues. It always does. I'm always, I feel like I'm always behind the eight ball trying to get in front of something that I got to deal with. I remember when I first bought a house, someone, some older person said to me, well, you just bought a whole bunch of problems, brother. You know, I'm all excited about getting the first house. Oh, this is great. You know, Catherine and I are going to move into this house. We're going to start a family. Everything's just wonderful. I bought about a 70-year-old house. And some old codger, I told him, well, you just bought a whole lot of problems there, brother. Good luck to you on that one. 
Now that's a guy who's had to deal with some houses before, right? He's got a lot of miles on the odometer and he recognizes you got to upkeep. You got to do upkeep on a house. You got to put a roof on it. You got to paint it. I mean, that house was kind of like, uh, I don't know if y'all used to watch Green Acres. You know, they had that electrical thing where you, now look, the, the, uh, the, ironing, the, the iron, that's a six. You can't plug in a six with a four. You know, they're constantly blowing fuses in their house because the electricity was not designed to run all the stuff we have today. I bought that house not knowing anything about any of that. I'm just happy. I'm just married and happy and everything's wonderful. They come out and look at the house, and on the side of the house, there's an electrical box on there that's made to, I guess, run a toaster and about five lights. <laughs> Here I am trying to run a bunch of computers, and we've got space heaters and all this stuff. I mean, that, it's a miracle. So it's a testimony of God's providence and mercy towards me that we didn't just burn up in that place. The place needed a lot of work and a lot of maintenance. We had to put a roof on it. We had to paint it. We had to work on windows. We had to have the, the, some of the piers rebuilt underneath it. A few years ago, we bought a newer house. I thought, man, this house is practically brand new compared to what we had before. And I thought, man, everything's going to be great. And this no. Got to fix the air conditioner, replace it. It just never ends. I got siding that needs to be replaced. I got, it's just, it just seems like it's never ending. Some of y'all are smiling out there because you've done a little maintenance on a house and you're probably sitting there going, yeah, I got that siding that's coming off the side of my house. I really wish he wasn't preaching on that because I didn't want to come in here and think about that. But now I'm thinking about that's something I got to do. I've got a tree that I need to take down. Well, there's some more money. You gotta get, I got trees growing onto the house. Got to get that taken down. All of you have a list right now of stuff you need to do to your house. Now, Doug just built a house, so he's probably living in that realm of like, well, I got it, I got it good for a while. I don't know. No, you're still, no, there's still stuff, right? Even when it's brand new. Take that list, however long it is, and put it over here in the spiritual domain, and I guarantee you've got a longer list in the spiritual domain of stuff that you're likely neglecting and thinking, I need to do some maintenance on this. I don't know what your list is, but I know it exists. And if this thing is really a spiritual battle, that's the list we need to be more focused on as we live our lives. That's where the battle's taking place. Well, I don't want to preach the entire uh, sermon on the armor of God, but I do want to hit this one because I always have to hit this one. Verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's back to what you were talking about, Matthew 4, 4, right? That's your sword. You need to be familiar with the Word of God and recognize that it is a weapon that can protect you in this world. But you know what? If that thing's sitting dusty in your closet somewhere, you hadn't taken it out in years, it's covered in rust, it's not going to do you much good. You need to have it at your disposal. You need to use that Word of God in the battle. And I always have to mention the helmet of salvation. The biggest issue in Christianity from my vantage point is that if you do not understand the doctrine of salvation, what Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary, that is your salvation. If you don't understand that, if you don't have that straight in your head, you don't have the helmet of salvation on. And religion will come in and mess with your head. That's what they do. You know why they mess with it? 
because you don't understand it, you don't have the helmet on. They're going to take it right to your head. It's not going to be a body shot. It's going straight to the head. That's where people get so confused. That's why I've so often said, if you can just understand what Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary, you will go a long way down the path of indemnifying yourself from being mistreated and abused by false ideas of religion. But it's a fight. Now, it's a good fight. Titus chapter 3. Let's look at this right quick. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. I love this verse. I, I used to repeat it a lot more often, but uh, it comes to mind in this particular context. This is a faithful saying. Paul speaking of all that went before in, in the book of Titus. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. If you set about the business of being a spiritual farmer and come forth with the produce that was listed earlier in that chapter, this is going to be good and profitable unto men. I'm thankful for the, the produce that I see within the church. I know how we are loving and caring for one another, but I also know there's more that can be done. And I want to try to encourage that. These things are good and profitable unto men. And they can be a real encouragement to others. So we've got to fight the good fight, but it's a fight of faith. Brother Andy mentioned something about the importance of prayer. And I was thinking about this. He and I had a conversation earlier this week over in James chapter 1 and verse 5. Uh, is this promise, it's another one that I mention a lot. Uh, but I think it's one that we always need, but we particularly need now in this church. We need wisdom. Chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. What is it in your life today? What is the spiritual battle that is before you where you say, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing is to do. I don't have wisdom sufficient to feel like I can actually address this issue. Well, the question is, is that on your prayer list? Is that on the list of things on that spiritual list of keeping your house, doing maintenance on your spiritual house? Is that part of the request that you're making there? That should be something that we're doing on a regular basis because there's a promise of God here that says God's going to give it to you. God has promised to give us the wisdom we need in spiritual matters. Now that is an astonishing promise. And I have to say, if someone were to, you know, kind of honestly assess my life, they might say, well, I've seen you do some pretty stupid things. <laughs> I guess God didn't give you that wisdom. Well, it's entirely possible that I didn't pray for that wisdom in some instances. I'll admit to that. But I'm trying to pray for it now in the instances where I see the need. Maybe I don't see every need, but I'm trying to be mindful of this promise as I think you should be. And you might say, well, even since you've been doing that, I see, I'm not sure you've, uh, everything's been uh, attended with wisdom in how you've lived your life. Well, that's probably true. You know, God can give you wisdom, but that doesn't make you act in a wise fashion. He doesn't say he's going to absolutely predestinate that you are going to use the wisdom he gives you in a way that would be profitable to everyone. We don't believe in absolute predestination anyway. 
God has promised to give you the wisdom. It is your responsibility to use that wisdom in the manner in which you should to the benefit of your life. Have you ever known there was something you needed to do? You just know, I need to do this. I'm not even going to fill in the blanks. Everybody's got their thing. Something I need to do, and I'm not going to do it. Did you have the wisdom? Well, you knew what the right thing to do was. I would say in that sense, you had an academic affirmation of what the wise and right thing to do is, and yet you chose willfully to do something other than that. I say with reverential fear that at times I feel as though the disparity in my life doesn't have anything to do with, well, I I forgot to ask for wisdom in this matter or that matter. God hadn't given me the wisdom yet, so that's why I made all those bad decisions. God has given me more wisdom than I've applied in my life. God has given all of us more wisdom from His Word than we have consistently and effectively applied in our lives. So I'm placing the disparity between wisdom and our practice on us. That's conditional time salvation, by the way. That's another way to come at it. Do you know the right thing to do? Yes, I know the right thing to do. Are you going to do it? No, I'm not. Well, be prepared for conditional time condemnation. You're going to suffer the consequences of that. So we need to be praying that God would give us wisdom in this spiritual battle. Solomon prayed for wisdom, and God granted it to him. Solomon jumped the rails. Think about that. God gave him wisdom. Where does the fault lie? Well, God didn't give him enough wisdom. No, He gave him the wisdom. Solomon just didn't use it. He chose to do something else. So if this is a spiritual battle, it's a battle of faith. We are in a battle of faith. Romans chapter 1 speaks about this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, verse 16, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Gospel truth is wrapped up in this idea of a battle of faith. Do people believe this or do they not believe it? Are you going to live in accordance with what you say you believe, or are you not going to live in accordance with it? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's the fact that you had faith that made it possible for you to hear the gospel and say, that is the truth. That is the truth, and I believe it. You should also say, and I want to live in accordance with it, as it is written. That's where Paul's going with this. The just shall live by faith. What he means by that is not simply the faith of affirming that Jesus Christ delivered my soul at Calvary. I believe he died there, that my sins were placed upon him, then he rose again from the dead, and that's all I need to be justified. That is part of the faith. It's a big part. That's the core gospel truth that we need to affirm. When it talks about living by faith, it's talking about 
acting in a way that is consistent with that profession of faith that you just said. Because when you say all those things, you're saying Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. I should not only accept the gospel testimony that He died for my sins and put them away at Calvary and I'm going to live in glory with Him. I should also accept the teachings of what He said about how I should live my life. Because it's a spiritual battle and it takes place in the realm of faith. Let's look at another aspect of faith here. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about this. Faith is a substance. Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. You want a good report among God's people? It's going to have to be done as a result of exercising faith. Bringing forth that spiritual produce as a result of it. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Yeah, how do you receive that? You don't receive that by science. You don't receive that by a university education. You don't receive it by what you learn in a junior high school biology textbook. You receive it by faith. And the source of it is the Word of God. You know why that is? Because we're living in a spiritual battle here. And what undergirds all of this, our every aspect of our existence, is the spiritual reality that we so often don't look at. God created this world. If you believe that, you believe it by faith. You don't believe it because, and some people say, well, I looked at this evidence here, and there's lots of people talking about the evidence of the flood and, and other things that we believe. That's fine. Those are interesting discussions or whatever. The reality is this. Let's cut to the chase. The reality is you believe it because God did a work in your heart and gave you faith so that you could receive the Bible's testimony that said God created this world. Amen. That's all there is to it. Amen. You might find something in science that you say, well, that somehow somewhat affirms something I believe about the creation. Great. Doesn't change the fact that you got that through faith. And you heard it declared from the Word of God, and that's exactly how it should be. Now, back in chapter 6 of Timothy, he goes on to say, he kind of gives a charge to Timothy here in verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good profession. This is a serious charge, right? I'm doing this before the Lord. So, be aware of the seriousness of the matter. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that give you the sense that, well, okay, keep this for now. We're going to have a meeting in two weeks. Might change it up a little bit. That's where most of Christianity has gone with it, by the way. There's huge groups of Christians uh, under the broader rubric of Christianity that split on this topic. We say the Bible is the sole rule of faith and practice in God's house. That's Matthew 4, 4. That is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That, those are the verses that affirm that truth. Here's one simple step. You say, well, yes, the Bible's great. But also the church is a living institution and it's made of people and it changes and evolves over time. So we now have two witnesses. We have the Bible plus whatever the church tradition has said. And those who are heads of the church are at liberty to make changes to this over time so that they drift apart. And then when you say, which one do we listen to? Oh, we need to listen to tradition because this is old and traditions are equally important. Now there's entire enormous sections of the Christian world 
that are living in that realm. And it's almost impossible to have discussions with them because you're not starting from the same premise. If you say, yes, the Word of God says this, and the Word of God is the sole rule of faith and practice, and you're talking to someone who agrees with that, they're like, okay, well, yeah, that is what the Bible says. But if someone says, yes, but there's also our tradition, and this thing was said in this council, and this thing was said in this declaration, and this thing was said here, so we have to listen to that too. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about, um, keep thou this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about keeping and maintaining the doctrines of the church. They don't change. <clears throat> Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In other words, King of kings, Lord of lords set this up. He got it right the first time. He doesn't need to append it and revisit it over and over and over again. Part of our Americanism inclines us to want to accept that form of religion. Well, we're going to have a, uh, we're going to have get Congress together. We're going to make some new laws, and we're going to fix a bunch of problems. That's, that's one of the ways that your American culture can influence you to want to modify your Christianity, because you think, well, that's how it works in America, and America's good. So that's how it ought to work in the church. It don't work that way. It doesn't change. It was set up by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He got it right the first time. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So, set up by one that's perfect, has all power. There's no need to be changing things. It's ridiculous to think so. Charge them that are rich. Oh, wait a minute. He's going back to this again? Now, we've already hit this multiple times in here. Are you starting to see the emphasis that he has on how riches can get in the way of your spiritual development? Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. I was looking at my retirement plan the other day and thinking, well, I don't know how I'm going to be able to retire. Well, maybe you should stop trusting on these unreliable riches of this world for giving you some assurance that there's ever going to be, uh, that God's going to not take care of you, right? I mean, the Lord's going to take care of me. That's the answer to that. It's a battle of faith. I don't know how it's going to work out. I just know the Lord's going to take care of me. And I need to stop trusting uncertain riches. But in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. God takes care of us. They that do good, they that be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Should be willing to help others with the things we have. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. You see, you can be holding on real tight to a bunch of stuff you got. Everybody's got stuff and they want to lay hold of it. Maybe you want to get a little more stuff. It's all about your stuff. Have some more stuff. Improve your stuff. Get bigger stuff. Buy more stuff. It just goes on and on and on. And meanwhile, we're sitting here looking at this thing, and over here, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, who is the heir of all things. He's got everything. He's got everything, and you're a joint heir. And we're over here playing with some play pretty that we're only going to have for another 10, 20, 15 years. I don't know. It's all going to nothing. Somebody else is going to be playing with it. You're not going to have it. It's going to be okay. You're going to have everything. And that's, the, that's where we ought to focus our minds on these things, yeah. and it's hard to do. That's how you lay in hold of eternal life. You see that? You don't make it, oh, that's out in the future, and I don't know, I guess I'll go to heaven when I die. 
No, it's, you have eternal life right here and right now. And you can lay hold of that truth by faith and live in accordance with it. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Well, there's a lot of that going on. I probably won't preach an entire sermon on science falsely so-called. It's a very popular topic. There's people, uh, science falsely called attacks creation by God. It attacks the humanity created in His image. It creates the, um, that there are male and female created He them. Science falsely so-called is, is attacking miracles in Noah's flood. It attacks the incarnation and the resurrection. It attacks the preservation of the Word of God. There's a whole host of things that science, falsely so-called, is trying to rise up against. But we have to receive by faith what is said in the Word of God and reject those things. We have to reject them. Verse 21, final verse here, "...which some professing have erred concerning the faith." See, there's people who were in the faith here. They start listening to the declarations of science falsely so-called, and they get pulled off into false ideas. They just walk away from it. You can be deceived by the things of this world. Finally, he closes with, Grace be with thee. Amen. So that is the end of the first epistle to Timothy. And I hope you enjoyed it as I did. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.